And open up your Bibles to James chapter two. We're gonna be looking at the second half of this chapter, starting in verse 14. And as you're looking there, I wanna make sure that you know where we're going because uh, it's not a mystery um, as to what the point of this section of James is about. Um, it's another test of uh, faith as he's been working through these passages, another test of genuine faith. And our main point for this morning is that saving faith is faith matched with action. Saving faith is faith matched with action. And just a little bit, you'll see why James's passage here is a little bit controversial. But he, he introduces this new, or new theme here as uh, in this, this first section of verses, verses 14 through 17. And we're gonna break this passage up into three sections. If your Bible's like mine, it only has two, but we're gonna break it into, up into three as we seek to, uh, to understand God's word and see what he wants us to learn from it this morning. And the first section is verse 14, 15, 16, and 17. And here's what it says. As what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so he asks a question here. He says, what use is a faith void of works? And the implied answer here is, it's not, right? Can that faith save him? He's implying a no here, and he's about to explain why. But can it, can it save him? Is it good? Is it useful? And he compares it to really empty words. What use are empty words? And he gives the example of if a brother or sister comes up to you needing daily food and clothing, and instead of giving them anything at all that you have, you just say, I love you, bud. You know, have a great day. Off you go. Or you know what, just, you're hungry. Yeah, I get that way sometimes. Be filled. Would you believe that person loved that guy? Is that love? Is that the actions that would correspond to what we should be living out with our brother and sister. Is that empty word of go in peace, be warmed and filled without the action of actually meeting some of those needs, is that useful at all? And the answer is no. He says, so also faith by itself, it does, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, like empty words, faith without works is useless and dead. You know, this concept of, um, you know, a stated belief or a stated notion mixed with the actions to correspond to it, it's not new to us, right? You, you, someone would say something, you'd be like, well, yeah, but do you really believe that? Because I'm watching, right? You know, y'all came in here and you, you sat down in the pew expressing some kind of faith that you would not fall through it. Otherwise, you'd still be standing right now. And if you walked in and you said, and I asked you, hey, do you believe this pew is gonna hold you? And you said, well, well yeah, yeah, yeah and then just kind of stand there, like, well, what's wrong? Well, I just feel like standing, stretching my legs. If you walked into this general area over here, um, your faith could have been tested. Because it was for me one day. I was here about two months, and I came in with my wife, and we sat over in this area over here. I can't remember exactly what pew it is, although I should. And I, and I was, you know, had faith. This pew was gonna hold me. And I went and I sat down, and it gave a little bit. <laughs> I was like, whoa. 
well, that's interesting. I look at the guy next to me. He looks at me and goes, yeah, there's a spot there. <laughs> what? Help a brother out. You see me about to sit in a spot that you know isn't the best fortification involved here. And yet you don't even say anything. Come on, right? You'd be like, what? You know, um, I've been blessed with a, a, a very... Um, Beautiful, loving family. I've got a, a wife I've been married to for, uh, for 13 years that was up here singing and part of the praise team. We've been blessed with two beautiful little daughters. Um, Eva's six. Uh, Lena's turning three soon. And um, I love them dearly. Uh, yeah, about two and a half years ago, we had a moment that if you have little kids, is one of those heart-stopping, stomach-dropping moments when you don't know where they are. We were, um, Eva was about three at the time and we had some family coming, uh, coming over. We needed to make some room in our, um, in our driveway because if you live in Fort Myers, you understand the fact that you can't just park your car in the road, otherwise you may not find your car in the road when you come out. And so I had to move my car down to the pool area so that it wouldn't get towed. And we were driving home and uh, Eva said, hey, can I move your car with you? I said, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, maybe. And we get into the house and I'm, you know, busy and my wife has our, our youngest, who's a newborn at the time that she's taken care of. And, and Eva goes into the bathroom and I'm like, and she takes a little while. And I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna go move the car. I said, all right, I need, need time, here, here we go. So I go and I move my car down to the pool area. I get out of my car, I start walking back towards the, um, uh, where we live and I see my wife come walking out into the road and she's holding our newborn I think nothing of it at the time, but I looked, I looked down and I heard these words. Do you have Eva? No? And the face that she had changed <laughs> and went to fear and terror and she ran back in the house. Well, what do you think I did? I started running myself. <laughs> I started taking off down towards the front of the house and at this time, Eva was at this age where she would like to hide from us without telling us she was hiding. And so that was a possibility, right? That she was in the house somewhere hiding, just going hee 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 because they couldn't find her. So I told, I told Kansas, I said, go, go back in the house, you know, uh, look for her everywhere, strike the fear of God into her as much as you can to make her come out of her hiding place while I go look outside. And I go back outside and I'm, I'm, I'm shouting her name and I'm, I'm looking around for her and a truck comes driving up and the, the guy stops and says, hey, are you looking for a little girl in a princess dress? If you know my daughters, you know that's probably them. But I said, yes, yes, of course, uh, that's exactly what I'm looking for. He says, well, she's, she's walking down the sidewalk towards Colonial. You see, we lived at Summerlin and Colonial over near that double-decker McDonald's and she was walking towards Colonial. To which I get a little freaked out even more. And I start running and I'm sprinting. I kick off my sandals and I'm sprinting around this house and I run through. I don't even know what I stepped in. And I'm running around this house and I look and I see her in the distance. Safe. Praise God. She's crying. So I have to go find out why she's crying. But I run over, I grab her, I pick her up and uh, I'm, we're just, you know, there for a minute. And I'm like, what happened? Well, I went outside to look for you I left the door open and the dog got out. Then she went looking for the dog to try to find the dog and then she got lost. Very innocent, right? 
Thankfully, we found her. Thankfully, we found the dog. Russell was a little worried. I didn't say that at the eight o'clock service and he was a little worried about the dog. Um, <laughs> never mind. Um, and, uh, and so we, we made it back and it was okay. But let me ask you this. As I told you earlier that I love my family, I love my daughters. If I told you that story and it went a little bit differently to where I heard my wife yell, hey, do you have Eva? And I'm going, no. And I, start, I just keep walking. I'm like, nah, don't worry, she'll turn up. <clears throat> my three-year-old daughter. And I just walked in the house, flipped on the TV and started watching something sports-wise, just thinking maybe she'll come back. Would you believe that I loved her? No. You would not. Because that stated thing of that I love my daughter does not match with that action. It matches more with what happened in real life. And so James is making a comparison here. He's, he's saying what genuine faith is, and it's faith matched with actions, all right? So he introduces this, this topic here, and he starts to, to take us down this road. But hopefully, you know, for all of us, our, you know, our faith is, is matching our actions and whatever it is that we profess faith in. You know, I'm excited about the opportunity to, um, to be a part of the family ministry team and to lead that team in a, in a direction that hopefully where we can partner with you all as parents better than we ever have before and make it clearer to you of what, we, um, what you can be doing as discipleship in your home, as well as what we're gonna try and do with your students while they're here on campus. Because when you say you care about your child's faith, we believe you, we wanna help equip you in that. But if I can challenge you for just a second, is that stated desire and priority actually a priority for you? You say you, that you care about your child's faith, why well, are you talking to your child about their faith? Are you making priority-based decisions that help your child in their faith? You're gonna hear me make a statement over and over again as we go over the years moving forward of, of the fact that if we want our children to be about Jesus, then our family must be about Jesus. And it has to correspond. But let's move on. We, don't even, we, we, got, we got more stuff to cover, all right? The second section here, James anticipates an objection. He anticipates an objection. If you're a sarcastic-based person like I am, you will love the next few verses, okay? Because apparently James was, okay? He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be known, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So he, he anticipates this objection and he throws down a gauntlet. He basically gives this, uh, he, he builds up this, um, this, this opponent, this theoretical opponent that would say something to the effect of, you do you in terms of salvation. You got faith, I got works, or I have uh, faith, you have works. The pronouns involving that statement there are, are meant to be generalized. And you do you works to an extent in life, just not for salvation. So you can go out to eat this, um, today for lunch and, and one of you choose chicken and one of you choose steak and one of you choose just vegetables and it's fine. And I get made fun of a lot of times uh, because of the, some of the teams that I've chosen to root for over the years. Um, I've been accused by some students because I root for the Buccaneers this year that I'm a bandwagon fan. But I'm used to that because I'm also a Patriots fan. 
And so um, you can choose how you wanna root for your teams and what teams you wanna root for, that's fine. I'll choose how I wanna root for them. And I've had a great 20 years, y'all. It's been great. If you, want, if you want to be miserable, it's up to you, right? We can choose our teams however we want. There's a longer story about how I became a Patriots fan. But it wasn't my fault that the GOAT moved to Tampa after I moved back to Florida. And then he brought Gronk. I mean, come on. So now I just have two teams. <laughs> I'm an AFC team and an NFC team. If you don't like that, too bad. All right, you choose your teams, I'll choose my team. But you know what? That doesn't work like that for salvation. We don't get to craft our own salvation. We don't get to choose what works for us versus someone else. And James is building up this argument to dive into and say, no, no, no. What you're claiming as faith is not genuine faith. This is genuine faith. And he throws another statement, which is truly just an incredible statement here. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, okay, you've got some intellectual understanding of God. Good job. You even know God is once. You're even right about that. Awesome. You know who knows even more than that? Demons. Oh, you're learning about God. That's great. You're getting to even a, a larger percentage of what demons already know about God. But this intellectual understanding that there's beings that have a greater one than you may ever get of who God is on this earth, those are demons. And you know how they respond to that knowledge? They shudder. They have, oh, they, they know who God is. They know the truth of God and they look at that truth of God and they shudder. James is saying, don't bring this intellectual only faith that doesn't impact your life into my, into my field here. Don't even try this because it's not going to work. Because even the demons shudder at what they know about God. You want me to, to agree with you that you know all this about God and you're saved and yet it doesn't impact your life at all? No, no, no. James isn't gonna play that game. He's not gonna play that game. And so he throws down a gauntlet. He says, you show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He's actually playing a little bit here. That, that foolish person is kind of like an empty-minded person. He's saying, you have your empty faith, empty of works. You empty-minded person. Do you want me to show you just how empty you are? And then he breaks into an argument to make his point. You see, James makes his argument in verses 21 through 26, but this is also where we get to the part that people get the most uncomfortable when reading it. You see, many of us, when we read scripture, um, we are reading it from like a Pauline perspective, right? We've read a lot of what Paul has written, and therefore we see things through more of a Paul lens, and sometimes it doesn't quite match up when we read something that's not written by Paul. And so as we read this next section, the question becomes, is James claiming a different salvation than Paul? Are they actually at odds about what genuine faith is? And so we're gonna read this passage, we're gonna then take a step back and look at their different perspectives, and hopefully we leave here with a better understanding of exactly what James is saying here. And so follow with me, verses 21 through 26. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac 
up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So he has three illustrations here and a plea, but we need to take a look at the different perspectives, okay? You see, because that word justified in there might have been the one that made you a little bit uncomfortable, or at least the most uncomfortable. You see, Paul and James use the same Greek word that's translated as justified in their, in their writings, but to understand it, we need to look at their perspectives. You see, up here we have Paul's circle on the top and James' circle down beneath. They were writing to different people. They were writing into a different context. Therefore, they were approaching things just a little bit differently. Paul was writing to a group of people that was struggling with more of a works-based salvation. People like the Judaizers, people like in Acts 15 where it's claimed that you must, in order to be saved, have Jesus and be circumcised. That we have this law, we have this works-based salvation. Yeah, we can add Jesus on top of it, but our salvation is still based on this earning through the law. And so Paul is writing into that context and pulling into genuine saving faith. James is approaching from a little bit different perspective and like we just saw in his, uh, in his fictitious person that he created of I have faith and you have works, this intellectual faith that he is taking on in his message. He's talking about a workless faith salvation. In other words, a, a faith that is just intellectual with no change in your life, no corresponding actions. And he's trying to pull it back up into the genuine saving faith. They have these different perspectives. Paul writing towards someone who says, yeah, yeah, we, we need the law and Jesus. And James is writing to, to a person that says, well, we don't need to live it. We believe it. Don't tell me I'm not saved because I know all the right answers. And they're talking about it from different perspectives and bringing it together. It's, it's maybe no clearer than when you put Romans 3.28 and James 2.24 side by side. And you see how they um, use the word justify, the same word, and yet you look at it and you go, oh wow, is, they've got to be in disagreement with each other. Take a look, Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now just looking at that, and I added the dashes, all right? Don't get scared, okay? It says, uh, is justified by faith, is justified by works, apart from the works of the law, and not by faith alone. It looks like they're in disagreement with each other. How can one say, say works and not faith, and the other one say faith and not works? Because they're approaching things from a different perspective. And they're actually defining justified differently. They're using the word justified differently. And we understand that in, in, in normal daily life, right? I have to be careful when I'm speaking with students uh, not to use a word that's been redefined. I've, uh, there's been times that I've said something and I see giggling happening in part of the room and I'm going, uh-oh, what did I say? Did, was it my fault? Is it their fault for not paying attention? I don't know. Because you can use a word and it's been redefined a little. 
You know, I could uh, tell y'all, oh, how was, you know, how was the, the birthday party? Oh, it was lit. And the teenagers in the room don't understand. That means awesome. That means great. And others in the room might be going, where's the candle? You had candles? Awesome. And you might think, oh, well, the teenagers these days, I mean, they've just got words making all kinds of stuff. It doesn't make any sense. I agree it doesn't make any sense, but it does, it's never made sense. <laughs> think back to the terms and, and phrases you utilized when you were a teenager. Go find a teenager, use those phrases, and they'll look at you cross-eyed like, that sounds so weird. It's always been like that. There's always been words that we, that we twist and shape into, into different definitions, but it's not just slang. It can be normal words too. The word run has like over 170 definitions. I could say there's been a run. And some of you in this room go, oh yeah, Yankees or Braves. Or I say there's been a run and they're going, oh yeah, how fast are they running? Or you say there's been a run and if around Christmas season, you might go, oh no, my wallet, I need to get my money out of the bank. Or one of you might say, oh, there's been a run. Oh, well, who's running for mayor or governor? What's going on? Same word, depending on the context, means different things different definitions for the same word. Let me help you understand how they're defining the word justified, okay? Paul is defining justified differently or using it differently than James. And it's got different, uh, different meaning here, okay? Paul is saying that justified is how I'm saved. In other words, imputed righteousness. For Paul, when he says justified in Romans 3.28, saying, it, it, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He's saying that your unimaginably high sin debt that you have racked up, racked up with God, that you, are, you, that you need to pay for yourself, that you deserve to pay for yourself, that you have been justified in Christ and his righteousness is credited to your account. You have imputed or credited righteousness as a believer. How I'm saved. Yet James uses the same word and, and he means something different. James means proof I'm saved. In other words, vindicated righteousness. That you say you believe in Jesus Christ and you're justified by the works along with that faith to prove that you have genuine saving faith. Similarly to how Jesus in the, in the New Testament was asked by John's disciples. He said, well, how will we know if you're the one we were waiting for or if we needed to keep looking? And Jesus says something so simple. He says, look, look at what's happening. Look at what's being done. Go back and tell John what you see and know that I am who I say I am. The miracles that he was performing were a justification, a vindication, a, a proof to who he was. So Paul says justified, he means how I'm saved. James says justified, he means a vindicated righteousness. And so when we go back to the passage and we understand that perspective and we read it again, we see something totally different. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, faith and works, and faith was completed by his works or justified. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness because it was still, how is still through Jesus? and he was called a friend of God. So his first example here is a, it's a patriarch, right? He uses Abraham as the example. If James's argument about how salvation works does not apply to Abraham himself, then he might as well stop making his argument. 
If it's not true of Abraham, then his argument just falls apart because why would we think it's true for us? So he uses Abraham as the first example. Abraham up here. And then he uses Rahab in just a minute. But, but in between there, he, he pulls a Zach Morris, right? He goes time out and he steps out and he talks to the people. The you in verse 24 is plural. He stops this imaginary argument he's having, or he's having and says, listen, do you get it? Do you see it? I've told you it's true. I've showed Abraham as an example. Do you see it? Verse 24 says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Do you see what genuine salvation is? Do you see that a mere intellectual understanding of things is not true faith? Do you see it? He he pleased with the audience, with with the reader there, but then he jumps right back in and he uses the second example. He goes from patriarch to prostitute. And I think the difference between those is part of why he chose those two people. If the same definition of genuine faith, a faith matched with works is true of Abraham and it's also true of Rahab the prostitute who through her faith actually ends up in Hebrews 11 as a part of what we call the hall of faith. It's true of both spectrums. And then he finishes up with a corpse. I didn't have a fourth P to use there, right? So I had to, you know, have the, 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 I didn't have a P word for, for dead body, right? But then I figured, you know, I don't really want one because I want to, I mean, full alliterations, that's, that's your, you're doing over there. So I want to do, you know, I, I had to ease into it, right? And not, not, not quite and totally embrace Russell Howard, but you know, it works. And so a corpse is the last example he uses. He says in verse 26, he says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That just like when a person dies and their spirit separates from the body, that body is now useless and dead. So also is a dead faith that is not matched with action. And so he lays out this argument. I think a very compelling one using his examples, and we're left with a question, is my faith matched with action? Do I have genuine saving faith? I pray that the answer is yes for all of us in this room. I'm also not naive enough to think that the answer is yes for all of us in this room. If the answer for you is yes, praise God. Continue in that faith. Continue to dive further and further and further into your faith and be sanctified and look more like Jesus. And as you continue in that journey, those justifying works that prove that you have genuine salvation, they're only going to increase. But if you walked in here this morning having merely a head understanding or a knowledge of God or not even that, or maybe resting in not just an understanding of, of some, some prayer that you might have prayed at, at one point but never actually changed your life. Take James' words seriously. What James is not saying is that if your faith is not matched with actions, then just get working on the actions. Put your boots on, get going, and earn that genuine faith. The proper response to the acknowledgement of the fact that you don't have a genuine faith is to fall at the feet of Jesus 
and repent and place your trust in Him for salvation. And get genuine salvation, a genuine saving faith.